welcome to Careers for the Blind. I'll be your host, Harrison Hoyes. And in this interview series, we'll be having conversations with blind and visually impaired people discussing their career paths. We'll have an opportunity to hear about the struggles they had along the way, advice that made them more effective in their careers, and in general, what has helped them lead happy and successful lives. In September 2020, I had a conversation with Al Alaya. Al lost his sight over an extended period of time due to retinitis pigmentosa. He started his career in the tech world, but in his 30s, when he lost the remaining usable vision that he had, he decided to go back to school to pursue a legal degree. And he's been practicing law since 2014. If you want to learn more about Al and the law firm that he works for, visit trelegal.com. Here's my conversation with Al. Thanks for taking some time to join me and tell me your story about uh, your experience with with vision loss. Can you start out just telling me about your childhood and where you grew up? So I uh, initially grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. Um, Then we moved to Tampa, Florida when I was in seventh grade. Uh, I uh, went to middle and high school there. Um, And then uh, went to college in Boston and you know, once I had sort of gotten to a city, a major city with public transportation uh, that enabled me to get around without having to drive, I, you know, basically stayed there. Okay. All right. But what was your vision like when you were going through uh, your elementary school, middle school, high school, and what was that experience like? So I never had any night vision. I had little to no peripheral vision. I became legally blind at the age of 17 as a function of having a restricted visual field of, you know, uh, less than eight degrees. But my forward vision with glasses on was, you know, 2040-ish, maybe 2060 by the time I got to high school, 2060 to 2080 while I was in college and afterwards, and then you know, it sort of precipitously dropped off a cliff when uh, I was in my 30s. Okay. All right. So through your high school and college years, you were pretty much doing everything with your with the site that you had. Yeah. I mean, I had I, I frequently had to have things enlarged. So small print was always a problem. Um, you know, I remember having to have a large print book for uh, English class, the Norton Anthology of English Literature, we had to get it in large print for me for senior year. Um, but other than that, I pretty much used print. Um, in college, I used print with enlargement. You know, and, and we're talking, to be fair, we are talking like I went to college uh, in 1992. So it's not like the screen reading tech was uh, um, as ubiquitous as it is now. And then, so after after college, or while you're going through college, you you were expecting that your vision was going to be getting worse, right? Yeah. I mean, I had been, di- you know, I was initially diagnosed at five. In sort of uh, in high school and in college, I went and got an ERG done that supposedly would sort of, you know, give me a curve that told me when I would get to a point where I had no useful vision, you know, that put me at no useful vision sometime between, you know, 35 and 45, you know, as an, as a kid in college, that's like forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You got plenty of time. Yeah, right. Exactly. So after you got that, that information, were you thinking at all about what kind of career you would have once you lost all your sight? Um, Yes and no. Right. So like, you know, I have a plan and I have a backup plan. Number one, I have been being told since I was 10 that, you know, sometime in the next five to 10 years, they're going to have whatever, you know, right. implants, uh, you know, bionic eyes, a genetic cure, a genetic solution that will stop the degeneration and freeze you where you are. Right. You know, and so it's like, all right, well, you know, it's, it's, it's now at 18, it's been, you know, five to 10 years and, you know, what advancements are happening seem to be very slow, but you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next 20 years, right? I mean, that's double my current lifetime. So that could certainly be, you know, they could certainly have something that will prevent me from having to 
um, go completely blind. On the other hand, if that doesn't work out, eh, I'll figure something out. You know, there are blind people who, you know, are successful and, you know, do interesting things. Sure. Figure it out when I get there. Right. Okay. Um, Did you and, know and as any? I say, I'm sorry. Did you know any blind people when you were younger? I, I only met, um, I met one blind high school student of my mother's. My mother was a high school teacher um, when I, we were in Niagara Falls. And I met one of her blind students who was a sophomore and who was mainstreamed in um, her high school class. Uh, keep in mind that this is like, you know, you know, late seventies, early eighties. So, um, we're just getting to the point where the idea of not sending a kid to a blind, so to a school for the blind is, you know, starting to become even, even, uh, marginally accepted. My parents chose to mainstream me because I was identified as, as gifted and talented. And so, you know, there was no such thing as a school for the blind that taught gifted and talented kids. So, you know, it was like, well, okay, we can send him to school for the blind and, you know, um, he will learn blindness skills, but not much else. Or we can send him to, you know, uh, more rigorous uh, academic schools in which he'll learn no blind skills. Well, you know, again, as I say, the doctors were all saying, well, you know, yes, you know, eventually he'll go blind, but this is so far off and, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff and all kinds of research. So who knows? So, um, you know, that said, you know, I didn't know how I would be able to use a computer as a blind person um, at the time that I was, you know, thinking about whether I wanted to major in one thing or another in college. I just knew that I'd always been a computer nerd. I'd been using a computer since like, what, fourth grade? You know, I mean, I was the kid who was, my writing was always atrocious as a function of not being able to see very well. So my, you know, I, I basically typed all of my papers starting in fourth grade. And this is in like, you know, 1983. Um, wow. So, you know, like on an Apple II, like, you know, this is before anyone would do that. So obviously I get to college and all of a sudden I get to like play on real computers. Um, the idea of doing software engineering was appealing. I was good at it. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to do this forever, but if I can't, then whatever, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. As I said, I'd always thought about the idea of going to law school, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> figured I was enjoying doing software engineering and I would keep doing that. And then if it, that didn't work out, if the cure didn't show up or if I couldn't do it for whatever reason, then, you know, we'll see about maybe doing something else. Maybe it'll be law school. Maybe something else will strike my fancy. Don't know. And so that's basically what I did for, you know, uh, 10, 12 years, um, was worked in, you know, software engineering and, uh, tech consulting. Um, I went, I, I spent a year living in, I spent a year living and working for KPMG in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, um, I, I did get a guide dog at the end of college because, you know, with my night vision, I couldn't see anything. And I found that while I had initially gotten a guide dog just for being able to get around at night, um, you know, I found that it was incredibly helpful to use the guide dog getting around during the day because that way, you know, the fact that I had tunnel vision didn't mean I had accidentally bumped into people and, and so forth. Um, right. Okay. So, you know, traipsed all over Europe for a year with my dog, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, I, fast forward to 2008, I, um, got to a point where the company I was working for w had grown. And so, you know, whereas I had been able to do software and I had been able to sort of keep doing software engineering sort of past, past the time it would be expected. I could do that given the screen enlargement and how, how slow it took me to read things just because I had written all of the code in our code base. It was a small startup company. And so then, you know, when we started to grow, which is good for the company, um, we had sort of more people working on the code base and it just, it became unsustainable. Um, okay. so, you know, I found myself, you know, uh, out of work on disability and, you know, trying to figure out like, okay, now what next? I thought, well, you know, we'd I'd always thought about going to law school. That's still an option, but honestly, you know, as, as we discussed, I'd, 
I'd always used uh, large print when I was in school, you know, at this point, 15 years ago, do I, you know, do I have the skills I need to be able to now go back to school as a blind person relying on, you know, <clears throat> screen readers, um, text to speech, etc. All right. And, and so did you get some training before <clears throat> going to law school or did you just kind of pick it up as, as, as you went? I, I, uh, both. So as my vision was deteriorating, um, I was using, uh, voiceover on, you know, the Mac, um, more and more and relying on what I, on my vision less and less, I would say over the last, like, you know, 18 to 24 months that I was working. Um, I did go for a, uh, training to the training program, um, at the Colorado center for the blind. Okay. Um, but honestly, that was not something I did not increase my technical skills at that point because I had already, you know, gotten to a point on using voiceover that I could use the computer effectively, you know, for all of the things that they teach you to do, you know, word processing, etc. So for, for me, that was more, uh, learning that one, uh, learning more confidence in my ability to get around under sleep shades and, and using a cane. As I mentioned, I had gotten a dog when I still had 20, you know, 2060 forward vision during the daytime. And as my vision had deteriorated, I had sort of just continued to rely more and more on the dog. I'd never really learned cane skills and didn't feel confident that I, you know, if I didn't have a dog that I could get around. Um, so that was the, the training at the center, uh, really increased my cane skills significantly. But in terms of, you know, uh, you know, technical computer skills, I wouldn't say that, um, I I'd say that I, I picked those up gradually as my vision deteriorated. And by the time I got to a training center, I'd already developed my training skills to the, uh, level that the training center was, was, you know, capable of teaching me. Okay. Why did you, what are you using now? Cane or dog? Um, mostly dog, sometimes cane. In what situations are you using, using the cane versus dog? Well, I mean, initially, uh, my, uh, my dog had got sick for a couple of days and, you know, I was without him. This is, you know, my previous dog back in 06, 07. And I realized like, oh, geez, you know, I can, I can, I barely feel comfortable walking down the street you know, with a cane, you know, I would say that now, when do I use a cane? Um, if I'm going someplace where, um, the dog is going to be very distracted, um, or the dog is going to be uncomfortable, like, you know, I might not take him to say a rock concert, <laughs> right. Sure. You know, um, um, but you know, primarily I use a dog, but you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation where, you know, my dog is injured, my dog is sick, or for whatever reason, my dog can't be with me. And I now can't get around because I can only get around using a dog, right? I mean, you know, right, right. Okay. So, so it was after the Colorado Center for the Blind that you went to law school? <clears throat> uh, several years later, actually, because at that point, it's like, okay, so now I feel like I've, you know, I, I have the tech skills I need, but I still haven't been in school. Um, you know, to ensure that I can be a successful student. So at that point, I actually went back and took night classes uh, in uh, law-related subjects, you know, sort of, you know, adult education courses. So I took a course in uh, constitutional law at Harvard Night School. Um, I took a course in legal writing. I took a course in sort of, you know, legal studies. Um, you know, I took a course in communications. I even took a course in food writing just for a lark, you know, to sort of get my feet wet back in the, you know, academic world and, and, and ensure myself that I could be a successful student, um, you know, in this new, you know, paradigm of using uh, non-visual techniques. Because okay. <clears throat> I didn't want to, A, want to make sure that I really wanted to go through the pain and suffering of taking the LSAT and going through law school. Um, and, and B to make sure that before I took the financial 
burden of, you know, going to law school that this is something I really wanted to do. Right. All right. Of course. And then how long, I guess, uh, did you go through a, a normal uh, law school program? Yeah. So I took, you know, classes, about one to two classes a semester at night school um, for one, two, two years, give or take. Um, and then I took the LSAT and applied to law school. I entered law school in the fall of 2011. Um, I went to Northeastern Law School up in Boston and, you know, finished law school in the normal time. Okay. Uh, so, it's a, you know, law school is three years. Um, I finished in three years. Um, it's a very intense program at Northeastern. They do what the, uh, cooperative legal education. So, you know, your first year is your regular two semester first year. And then in your second year, you switch to a quarter program where you do um, one quarter uh, classroom education uh, followed by one quarter of full-time legal work in a cooperative educational program where you are working for, in my case, the Attorney General's Office, um, the National Federation of the Blind's General Counsel, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, also a, a international disability rights uh, program that they run out of the University of Ireland in Galway. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're doing real legal work in, right away in your second year. Yeah, full-time, full-time, 40 hours a week, you know, uh, legal work under the supervision of practicing attorneys. All right. How was the accommodation during your program? Um, it was great. You know, fortunately, I knew everything that I needed and knew how to get the things that I needed. And so really, I, I needed I only needed the program to sort of intervene if I wasn't getting something that I needed. And that was uh, very, you know, uh, few and far between. So, for instance, you know, when I wanted to get my textbooks, um, I needed the, the, the publishers required the request for my textbooks to come from the, you know, university's disability office. Okay. So I would like put together the list of books and with the ISBN numbers, print out my receipt from having purchased the paper copies on Amazon, send them to the person at the disability office along with the people. And she needed to contact at the publishers so that it was like, you know, I only need you to do this thing. <laughs> In terms of work accommodations, um, as I mentioned, I, I was a Mac user. So what I basically did was I bought a second um, device, a Mac Mini, and I would take that with me and I'd say, here, I'm going to use this computer, tell your IT department to do whatever they want to it to like, you know, um, you know, make sure that it's safe and, and whatnot to get it on the network, um, you know, and then I'll just give them a list of the programs that I need and you know, generally speaking, they were just like, mm, yeah, no, that's fine. So I didn't need them to provide any additional accommodations for me. You know, I, okay. I brought my accommodations with me. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's good. Uh, what, what programs were, did you also load onto your Mac? So um, I was primarily using, um, in my case, a Markdown composer and a LaTeX editor. So, you know, having sort of grown up in, in the um, um, tech, you know, technology centric universe of computer science. Um, I had been, I had been using LaTeX to do my math assignments in college, um, since early on. And, and in fact, one of the things I learned, uh, in college was how to, if my professors gave me my assignments, um, as LaTeX source files, which all of them used, um, I could very easily put like one line of code at the beginning of it and, you know, it would instantly blow everything up to like giant fonts so that I could read them on the screen. Um, so I, had, you know, was comfortable using LaTeX and, and that way, you know, I didn't have to focus on, you know, making sure that all of the, um, you know, that, you know, whether the comma is or is not italicized by looking at it, right? I could simply say, okay, you know, 
it, whether it's in Markdown by putting, you know, asterisks around the part that needed to be in italicized or in LaTeX by, you know, similarly in, in cap, encapsulating the pieces of text in braces to say this needs to be in italics. Um, it's a way of doing things that are, you know, marking up text without having to rely on the screen reader properly translating text back to you. Because at the time, um, while it was possible to use the Mac to read italic text, etc., trying to listen to it as it's reading you the text um, um, and having it switch back and forth between telling you when the you know text changed attributes, like from plain text to italics and back, um, and and having to then turn on reading me the punctuation in order to be able to listen to it and have it catch that, you know, the comma is or is not italicized. And I know that that sounds stupid, but like, you know, you literally lose points in a class if the comma is italicized in law school. Um, oh, you know, the okay. way that the way that citations are formatted in legal writing is incredibly important. And one of those little detail oriented things that like, you know, lawyers are very serious about. And you'd think it wasn't a big deal, but it's a huge deal. Um, so that's what I did. Um, you know, I would have a, a processor to turn that markdown file or that LaTeX file into a word processing document that my supervisors could read. Um, you know, I remember at one point my, uh, the, the uh, assistant U.S. attorney who I was working for in the U.S. attorney's office, um, you know, w gave me a, a, a positive reference when I was applying to work for a judge. And the judge said, you know, he's, he's blind. How does he, how does he use the computer? And she said, she said, honestly, I have no idea. I, I, he's, he sits there like with headphones in and a computer with no monitor on it. And then he like hands me a USB stick and it's got like, you know, a well-organized brief with all the formatting correct and a bunch of folders with like, you know, his research files and all the cases he's filed. I have no idea how he does it. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm, I have not heard of those programs before. Are, are they, are those programs that, that you are familiar with because of your tech background or do other blind lawyers also use those programs? Oh, I think it's probably in purely as a function of my background. I think most blind lawyers use windows and Microsoft word. Um, but you know, I hate windows and I hate word. Um, so okay. I, you know, uh, and, and, you know, fortunately I've been able to work for, um, I've been able to thus far work for, um, firms and employers that, you know, that are not as concerned about whether or not I am using the specific tools that are necessary, you know, that, that everyone else uses, um, as long as the, you know, content that I produce is, you know, usable by other people and is, you know, um, um, both in, uh, intelligent, rigorously researched and written, um, you know, and and properly formatted, right? So uh -huh. um, when I'm, you know, when I'm done with a, and, and, and in fact, something that really um, helped clarify things for me, I was really worried about going in to work for a firm. Um, you know, after law school, I did a fellowship at the firm that's the um, you know, primary outside counsel for the National Federation of the Blind, <clears throat> um, Brown, Goldstein, and Levy in Baltimore. And I was worried that, you know, here I am, I'm going to come in and I'm, I'm using this Mac and I'm doing all this stuff. And, and, you know, I'm not sure whether or not my paragraphs are properly indented for the way that like each court wants things to be formatted. And I was concerned about this. And I talked to my mentor and he said, look, I don't know all that stuff either. That's what we have paralegals and legal assistants for. That's their job. You know, your job is to make sure that like, you know, you, ha you are applying your legal training to drafting content that is, you know, correct. And in terms of making sure that like, you know, the paragraph spacing and, and indentations and all that are the way that the court wants it, you know, that's what the legal assistants and paralegals do. It is a waste of your time. It is a waste of my time. I'm cited and I send it to them to do that sort of formatting stuff. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were there a lot of other blind lawyers at that particular law firm? Um, at the time, there was one. 
um, they have that firm has a disability rights litigation fellowship that is um, uh, set aside for a, a attorney with a disability um, who has been out of law school for less than three years and it's a one to two year fellowship so you know when i showed up there they had previously had um an attorney who was a wheelchair user they had had um, a blind attorney um, they had had a attorney with um, uh, autism spectrum disability um, and so forth so you know when i was there there was one other blind attorney who was not a fellow um, he had just been like a regular associate attorney and he was there for about six months of overlap with my time there. Okay. All he right. then, he moved out of town, so he left. All right. I almost would have expected that the law firm that represents the National Federation of the Blind to have at least, you know, one kind of permanent blind lawyer, but maybe not. I mean, they had previously had a couple of blind paralegals. Um, you know, they had had, um, you know, my current boss is a former, uh, is a former fellow there. Um, but, you know, they, the reason that they, as I understand it, the reason that they founded the fellowship was um, to help blind and other attorneys with disabilities who were having difficulty breaking into the legal field. But they didn't want it to be the sort of fellowship that was just a, you know, kick the tires of the disabled attorney to see if you want to hire them. In fact, one of the, one of the restrictions of the fellowship was that um, when the fellowship was over, you could not be hired as an associate at the firm, you know, for some number of years because they wanted to make sure that, you know, they could give recommendations to fellows coming out of the fellowship who were seeking to work elsewhere and not have those employers say, well, I don't understand. Why aren't you just going to continue working there? What's wrong with you? Right. Oh, like, what's okay. wrong with the Right. And so instead it's like, well, actually the fellowship precludes them from working here. So we are working hard to get them a job where they want with, you know, with you other firm or judge or what have you. Um, and we can vouch for them. And, you know, the only reason they're not working for us is because, you know, the fellowship precludes it. Yeah. That's a much so. better reason than uh, probably any other. So that's good. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have uh, any advice for people that are thinking about getting into blind and visually impaired people? That is that are thinking about going to law school. It is. Um, it is very hard. It is. There's a. There is a lot of material to consume and to think about, and that you have to be able to keep in your head. Um, you know, law school classes consist of you, you read cases and the professor will cold call on, you know, uh, some student in the class to discuss the cases that you reviewed. And, um, you know, you are expected to be able to explain the, you know, reasoning behind the case, um, you know, explain the background um, and all of this is sort of off the top of your head. Um, you know, I, I very much enjoyed law school. Um, I sort of have a, a good memory for those sorts of things. Um, but you know, it is, it is very difficult. I would also say that, um, I did the year after I graduated, another blind student, um, entered the law school and, um, um, he was struggling and some professors that I had had, um, connected, connected the two of us. Um, and it turns out part of the problem was that, um, he had thought that he had, uh, sufficient computer skills to like deal with the legal writing and, and so forth. But, um, in fact, he had sort of, uh, I, I guess, I guess he had been, um, allowed to skate by and turn in work that wasn't necessarily up to snuff, you know, compared to his cited colleagues, uh, you know, up through college such that, 
you know, he thought he, you know, his grades were good and he thought he had the necessary skills, but, you know, when all of a sudden he was in a situation where, you know, no, um, as I said, all of these little details about your writing are super important and you have to get them right. Um, he was not equipped to be able to do that efficiently. And so he couldn't get, you know, he, he, he was spending much, much more time working on his assignments than um, his fellow law students. Um, Would you say you, you spent the same amount of time on your assignments that, that your cited peers did? I actually think I had an advantage because, you know, um, um, as long as you're able to focus uh, and, you know, I, I don't have trouble with like sort of, you know, focus and distraction. So I thought I always thought I had a major advantage in law school because I didn't have to use my vision to um, read the assignments. You know, I could read the assignments while I was, you know, commuting to and from school. Um, especially since having a guide dog, you know, um, um, one of the advantages of, as I see it, to using a guide dog over a cane is that, you know, uh, there, there are sort of, you can, you can cede responsibility for the fiddly little details of walking around, like, you know, avoiding puddles and avoiding, you know, uh, you know, poles and other people to the dog. So that frees up brain space to do other things like listen to a book or in my case, listen to, you know, uh, law school assignments. And so, you know, once we got on the path that would lead to the subway station, you know, I could just sort of like focus not on, you know, not have to focus all my attention on the world around me getting to the train station. I could simply listen to the book and let the dog focus on get us to the train station and, you know, not really have to pay attention until we get to the door and frankly, at that point, it almost it's 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 really automatic. So I basically listened to my assignments while I was doing laundry, while I was cooking dinner, you know, while I was you know uh, commuting to and from school or going on walks. Um, and so you know, comparatively, I think I had it a lot easier. Okay. Well, I mean, I wonder if these days law students can get their assignments in. In, in audio format as well, because I mean, I do that all the time, listen, <laughs> listening while you're doing anything you're doing, uh, you're, you're, you're cooking, cleaning, anything, you're, you know, you, you can have, you can have uh, your headphones in or just, or have, have the speaker going, you know, if you're, if you're in the house. So it's something I've always wondered about if, if sighted people could really take advantage of the screen reading technology and other audio audio formats. I know a lot of people start, have started to listen to Audible, but uh, particularly when it comes to education, being able to listen to your assignments would be super helpful. I mean, they could, but it would require training themselves to use their hearing to do that. I mean, you know, part of the reason I was able to do it was because I can listen to text-to-speech at, 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 um, um, very high speed. Right. Yep. And, you know, a lot of people have difficulty listening to text to speech at all because it sounds so robotic. And, in, and frankly, the faster you listen to it, the more you need to decrease the um, human inflections. Right. So like, you know, you can you can set most text to speech voices to be, you know, between expressive and flat. Right. So, you know, so flat is to read everything in a totally flat tone of voice with, you know, some punctuation, comma, or no punctuation, period. And then, you know, a very expressive voice might have ups and downs, followed by pauses where there's a comma, and, you know, those little inflections of voice. The faster you listen, the less inflections you need. And in fact, the inflections get in the way because you have difficulty processing high-speed inflections of voice. Um, and I, and you know, I mean, when I listen to my phone, uh, you know, I can hear it just fine and I understand it. I'm swiping through and, and people around me are always just like, is that even English? You know, right. it just sounds like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, could sighted people do it? Yes. It would require a lot of training that, you know, blind people are forced to go through. And, you know, thus far I, I have only encountered one sighted person who, you know, like took the time to do it. And that's largely as a function of being married to me and, you know, being around <laughs> the technology talking so fast all the time. 
you know, yeah, and, and know. even and even that she reads and she she still reads faster than me with print. Like she reads, uh, you know, she can read an entire book in an hour. So, you oh, know, okay. So, yeah, I think my, I think my <clears throat> wife uh, has has she doesn't do it for fun or do it for any kind of efficiency, but she can at least understand my phone and 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 other screen reading things. It definitely definitely takes a little bit of practice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it takes quite a bit of practice. And if it's something where you're like, well, I can just go back to reading because, you know, there are things that are easier to do with print, right? Like it's easier to go back and jump back to a specific point in a block of text if you are, you know, if you are reading visually um, in a way that, you know, it's, you can do it if you're reading with a screen reader by like using sort of, you know, backwards search, but like on a computer. But, you know, certainly when I was listening, you know, on my phone using text to speech, if I needed to jump back, I would, I'd, I'd have to overshoot. Right. Cause like, you right. know, taking the time to like sit here and pull up the menu and try and type in the search on the text on the touch screen. Like by that time, like I've lost too much time. Um, you know, too much reading time. So I have to like, you know, just say, all right, swipe back one minute. Yes. That means I'm going to have to listen to like 45 seconds of extra stuff, but so be it. Right. Right. Earlier, you mentioned you had a mentor. Was the mentor somebody that was just assigned to you or somebody that, that you sought out? Um, so the mentor I was referring to at that time, um, was, um, a mentor who, um, you know, he, he, Dan Goldstein had been the sort of, um, attorney for the a high profile attorney for the national federation of the blind for many years. And so I knew him and, and it was his firm. Um, so I first mentioned it to him. Um, but then when I started at the firm, um, officially, uh, all of the associates, uh, and the fellow are assigned mentors, uh, among the senior partners at the firm. And so um, I was assigned a mentor who was a, a different senior attorney there. Um, and, you know, he basically said the same thing. So. Okay. Have you had other mentors, any other, have you had any blind mentors throughout your life? Not really. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, I would say, you know, um, there are certainly people who I, who I look up to, um, you know, but, um, um, I would say that as a function of being a national federation of the blind scholarship winner, I was, I was given the opportunity to, um, get to know several of the leaders in the organization and, Several of them are lawyers, but okay. um, I would not say that I have a sort of mentor-mentee relationship with any of them. Um, I suspect that that is primarily because since I became an attorney much later in life, you know, I'm now 46 years old, um, you know, several of the leaders in the, in the organization that are attorneys and who have been practicing law for longer than I have, um, are, you know, my age. And it's just, I think perhaps a little unusual to have a sort of mentor mentee relationship with somebody who's close to your own age. Okay. How long have you been practicing law at this point? <clears throat> uh, well, since, uh, October of 2014. So just about six years. Okay. All right. Nice. Yeah. Law is definitely something I think of. Uh, and I think a lot of people think of as being a uh, a little bit of a stereotypical blind career path. Uh, and you mentioning a lot of the people not, uh, higher up uh, uh, leadership in the National Federation of Blind are, are are lawyers. It's pretty pretty common, I I, I would say. I mean, I, I don't want to give you the impression that they're all lawyers. I mean, you know, we're talking of the mentors that I had when I was a scholarship winner. You know, um, two of them are attorneys and the immediate past president of the uh, NFB uh, is an attorney, you know, but like, 
you know, I had like 10 or 15 different, um, you know, mentors during the scholarship week and, you know, only, only two, maybe three of them were attorneys. Um, you know, several of them were in academia. Um, you know, uh, so anyway, yeah, you're right. It is sort of a stereotypical sort of, you know, oh, you know, blind people who become a lawyer, you know, justice is blind, that whole thing. Um, I do think that that is because at the time it was one of the few fields that was open because people who were, you know, blind and gifted and talented were sort of funneled toward, well, okay, you can be a lawyer because you can, because that means, you know, like reading things that are in English <laughs> and uh -huh. it's legalese English, but it's nevertheless English. Um, you know, now, now I think that more, um, as, as blind, gifted blind students are being encouraged to participate fully in, you know, um, more scientific pursuits in grade, middle and high school. And, you know, they are, you know, wanting to pursue those things in college and wanting to pursue those things as careers. Whereas that really, <clears throat> you know, um, was less of an option, certainly in the eighties. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And I think ar arguably, um, only became possible for me even using large print because of the advent of technology to do, you know, to write math in, in LaTeX. Um, you know, the invention of the Nemeth code for, you know, math, you know, for braille math. Uh, has really uh, increased the ability of people to do other fields. So, sure, sure. Do you know when that came about? Nemeth? I don't know. Um, I probably should, but I don't know when, when the Nemeth code was invented. I know Dr. Nemeth died. He was in his 90s, you know, fairly recently. So presumably Nemeth code has to have been around for 20, 30 years. But I suspect that Nemeth code didn't come into place until sometime in the 80s, okay. I had to guess. Yeah. When you were looking for jobs after, after you did your fellowship, what was that process like for you? Um, well, um, so I was in an unusual situation. My, um, I started my fellowship when my wife started medical school. <clears throat> and so I was going to have to, um, you know, once the fellowship was over, I was going to be in a situation where, you know, a f any firm that I went to or any employer that I went to, I would have to, you know, I, I would by necessity only be there for at most a year and a half to two years because my wife was going to be, you know, going into a residency wherever it is that she got a residency. Um, and I suppose, you know, some people might, you know, just not tell their employer, potential employer that they were only going to be there for two years. But, you know, um, <clears throat> in most situations at firms, you know, you're they're they're investing in you to sort of become a uh, future partner. Right. And so the notion of like going there, knowing that I was only going to be there for two years just didn't sit right. And so I knew I was going to have to tell employers that I was only going to be there for two years. And I figured that was going to severely curtail the opportunities I had available to me. However, fortunately, um, while I was at Brown Goldstein and Levy as a fellow, I um, got to work on a, a case that's been going on for 10 years with uh, my current boss, uh, Tim Elder. Um, now I had known Tim Elder um, from before I went to law school and while I was in law school, but he and I had never worked together, uh, until, uh, this case that, you know, I worked on for, it was one of the cases I worked on the entire two years I was at, in the fellowship. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Tim worked as, worked with us as co-counsel, um, had an opportunity to work with me, um, was in a position to be able to expand his practice. He had a solo practice. Um, and was looking to hire some additional attorneys. And so he said to me, look, you know, um, uh, I know that your fellowship is ending. Um, if you are interested, um, I'm going to be expanding the firm and uh, I'd like to bring you on. 
you know, to work and, and basically have you just work remotely. We're going to be doing this as a, you know, as a non-traditional firm in terms of we have a very small office in San Francisco, but, you know, it, it really, you know, we're, we're spread out. The, our paralegal is in San Diego. You know, I'm like 45 minutes outside of San Francisco, so I'm not planning to go to the office, you know, more than once a week or two. Uh, so, you know, you can work from where you are in D.C., um, and then, you know, wherever I know, you know, he and I, as I said, have been friendly and, uh, outside of work. So he knew my situation with Marley is like, you know, when Marley, uh, gets a residency, you know, you just wherever you go, you can just keep doing work remotely. Um, and is that something you're interested in? I was like, sure. That sounds great. You know, yeah. I can have yeah, flexible time. I can work from home. I can, you know, work from wherever I happen to be. Um, and so, you know, that was my process. It was not a, it was not a normal job application process. Um, you know, I, I sort of talked to a bunch of people and I was like, you know, realistically, this makes the most sense for me at this point. And maybe I might want to apply for some other jobs, you know, once we know where Marley's going to be in residency, but you know, until then, this is a great gig. And Frankly, you know, now in COVID, it's been a great gig because it has been functionally no different for me work-wise than, you know, non-pandemic. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, work in a, you know, t-shirt and sweatpants whenever I don't have to go to court. Now I no longer have to go to court. Just means that occasionally I have to dress up for a Zoom call. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How did you happen to know know that gentleman in, before law school? Well, as I said, he was a fellow at the firm before me. Um, he's very active. He's actually currently the president of the California affiliate of the National Federation of the Blind. But he was very active in sort of, you know, the uh, NFB um, as a young lawyer. And so since I knew that I was potentially interested in being a lawyer, um, you know, I I met him when, uh, you know, he was, I don't remember if I met him when he was a scholarship winner or if I met him afterwards, but you know, <clears throat> that's NFB is very good for blind networking in that respect, you know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So he is a, a, a blind person as well. Yeah. Oh yes. He's also a blind lawyer. Okay. All right. Excellent. You know, our firm has, our firm has three lawyers. All three of us have uh, disabilities. Two of us are blind and one has an invisible disability. Okay. Okay. All right. Can you tell me, um, I guess before COVID or even during COVID, what kinds of things are you doing for, for fun? What kind of hobbies do you have? What are you doing to make your life happy? Um, well, uh, I've always read a lot. Um, I read somewhere between 200 and 200, 250 books a year. Wow. Um, so that's my, I would say that's my primary sort of, you know, thing. Um, you know, I like, I like walking and now we live in Seattle, which is much more walkable than, uh, Marley spent, he got her, did a research year at the Cleveland clinic and, you know, Cleveland while lovely in some respects and, and eminently affordable is uh, not the most walkable city in the world. <clears throat> um, I've been, I do a lot of cooking, you know, with a, you know, wife in a surgical residency. That basically means I do all the cooking. Um, uh, you know, since, since COVID, since COVID, I've gotten into baking bread, but I feel like that's nothing. It, that's not terribly interesting because it feels like everybody's gotten into baking bread. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had sourdough bread uh, today. <clears throat> exactly, right? So um, in my case, my best friend um, uh, who lives in Boston um, is a phenomenal baker. You know, she mills her own flour, makes her own bread. Um, but now that we're on the West Coast, you know, visiting Boston you know, several times a year is more prohibitive and certainly during COVID. So I sort of felt like I had to, I had to either budget a lot for artisanal bread or learn to make bread. So I learned to make bread. Okay. Okay. Good. 
it sounds like you've had a relatively uh, smooth path through through, through law school, uh, knowing having that tech background. But was there anything kind of challenging along the way that you know because of your vision uh, that that you had trouble with, and that and how did you overcome it? Um, people just not getting it. So, you know, I, I had my legal writing teacher and it, I mean, I'm super proactive, right? So like I show up and I, as I said, I said, I helped the disability office with all of the information they needed to get me the things I needed. And similarly, I would meet with all of my professors before the term started be like, Hey, so I'm going to be in your class, you know, it's, you know, don't, you don't need to treat me treat differently, but you know, if you put something up on the board, I'm just going to need you to read it out as you're writing it. So don't like, you know, like write a bunch of stuff up on the board and then come talk to us and expect that like, I'm going to be able to read what's on the board. So if you're going to, if you're, uh, if you're going to write on the board, I need you to read it out loud. If you're going to have handouts in the class, you know, I'm going to need you to get those to me, you know, ahead of class so that I can, either read them beforehand or pull them up on my computer and read them when everyone else is. You know, if they are, you know, handwritten, I need them even more advanced than that because I'm going to need someone to like read them because I can't, you know, the computer can't read handwriting, blah, 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 blah. Fine. <clears throat> my legal writing teacher would just, you know, show up with handouts, like 20 page handouts that he had not sent me. And, you know, I, after like the you know the first time it happened, I was like, "Hey, listen, I know this is sort of hard and difficult to get used to, and you're probably like running a class to get the stuff to. But like, I really just need you to send these to me ahead of time because when you hand things out in class, I I literally can do nothing. It's like you're handing me, you know, a you know a block of wood, and everyone else is getting you know the Torah, and like, what am I supposed to do? Um, and he's like, "Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry." And then like you know he did it again. And then he did it a third time. And I finally just, you know, said like, this is unacceptable. Leave class and email me that document. This class is not going on until I have these documents. This is completely unfair. And, you know, he's just like, well, guys, no, I'm not going to leave and miss class. Like, you know, <laughs> I need, I need you to fix this. Like I've asked you, I've asked you multiple times, like, this is your job. I need you to fix it. Um, you know, and I think that I'm probably unusually assertive in that respect. So, you know, um, I, I know that a lot of times I, I'm sure that happens a lot more than it happened to me. You know, it happened to me once. Um, I suspect word got around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. so, you know, um, yeah, uh, you have to be very assertive and you have to really advocate for yourself, um, in law school, um, and, and, and in college too, frankly, I mean, you know, <clears throat> in, you know, I, I went to college and when I was Inter, you know, when I was interviewing for colleges, one of the things that I did in talking to all of the people at the various colleges was ask, you know, hey, when I was in high school, um, I had to wait six months before I got my textbook for English because that large print Norton anthology I was telling you about, um, you know, the publisher refused to give the, the to allow the school to enlarge it for me. They said, no, we're not going to let you. It's a violation of copyright. You're not allowed to blow it up. And you know, if it weren't for the fact that I have an exceptionally assertive mother um, who basically vowed to ensure that no textbooks from Norton uh, Publishing would be used in any public school in the state of Florida if they refused to allow a blind student to have a large print copy made. Um, you know, Florida at the time had a, you know, uh, uh, law that required that materials had to be available for students with disabilities in addition to the ADA. And she's, you know, and that basically got them to back down. But that's, it literally took, it literally took a threat like that to get me a book. And even then, by the time I got it, you know, it was like February. 
Um, so when I went to colleges, I said, you know, hey, so I'm going to need large print books. Uh, is that going to be a problem? And, you know, frankly, the reason I, I received my acceptance letter to Duke University the day after they won the national championship in basketball, I was going to Duke. <laughs> and then when I talked to their, you know, their disabilities office, they're like, well, we generally like to work with the publishers to get the textbooks enlarged. And I'm like, well, that's not good because I just went through that in high school and that did not work so well. Um, and, and that was basically the attitude of most places. And then um, when I got into Harvard, I talked to the people at Harvard and they basically said, you know, we will we have a lab that's dedicated to doing this. We do it all ourselves. And, you know, it, the, the head of the disabilities office, who was herself a wheelchair user and a former student at Harvard, said, uh, <laughs> she said, um, if a publisher thinks that it, we, we take the position that the ADA takes priority over any copyright issue that a publisher may have, and if they feel differently, they can try suing Harvard University. We'll see how well they do. <laughs> I said, great, sign me up. So, um, you know, now the publishers have gotten a little better about that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I did the same thing when I was looking at law schools. I, you know, went, flew around the country and went and met with all the people at the law schools and in the disability offices to find out, you know, so how do you do this? Um, and one of the advantages I found at Northeastern was they said, look, you know, we'll be honest, we have not had a blind student for, you know, six, seven, eight years. Um, but we can commit that, you know, we will do whatever it takes to make sure that you have what you need. And if it turns out that, for example, the exam software is not accessible, um, then we will just let you take the exam however you need to take the exam. And, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it. Versus other places where they're like, oh, yes, well, uh, I remember one law school that I, I won't name, but, you know, I, I <laughs> asked them, so how do you, you know, the, the, like secure exam software. How do you use, how do you do it? It's like, oh, well, what we do is um, we have you take the exam um, without that software. And then we have a uh, secretary type your answer into the test software under the testing conditions so that it like, you know, you, so that it, you show up as having used the exam software. And I was like, I know how important all that punctuation and stuff is. Like, I do not want to cede, you know, that to a secretary who I don't know and, you know, who may or may not be used to, like, doing legal writing. Right. Um, so, you know. So, no, anyway. that, that's, that's good advice to be able to, you know, ask the universities in advance about what kind of accommodation they're going to provide. That's a very important. Yeah, and, and just generally, like, you know, be proactive, you know, don't assume that just because the disability office sent a letter to your professors that like, you know, you can just like show up and everything will be swimming. Like, it's not fair that you have to be an extrovert and you have to go and talk to the professor and just like let them know and reassure them that like you're going to have a blind student. It will be fine. I'm not scary. I just need you to do a couple of things. Here's what they are. You know, you know, when I... When, when I take a test, I'm going to have to like, you know, go in a different room because I'm going to need extra time because it takes me longer to use the computer to, you know, read through things. But like, you don't have to worry about everything. It's, you know, the only thing you need to worry about is when you're in the classroom, you know, if you write things on the board, read them out loud. If you put out a handout, make sure you get it to me ahead of time. Or at least, you know, email it to me in class, whatever. Like, you know, it's... I don't know. I don't know how to explain like better than that. But, you know, I know a lot of students who are surprised that like, you know, they simply get a letter sent from the disability office to their professors and they just expect everything to go perfectly. And invariably it doesn't. Um, and, you know, right. I end up I end up having to get called in as their attorney suing the school because, you know, they didn't get the proper accommodations, um, you know, and and, it, you know, a lot of it could have been avoided if you know, uh, you know, students were more proactive. Um, and as I say, it's not fair. Uh, the law doesn't say that you have to be more proactive. The law actually says that you don't. 
Um, but you know, in the interest of not having to, in, in the interest of not having to call me to represent you, <laughs> uh, you know, be more proactive and, and, you know, then, then frankly, then if still things don't go well, even when you are proactive and, and that sadly also does happen, you know, students who are very proactive, try to work with their professors, um, and, you know, either the professors or the schools just, you know, um, ignore their obligations to provide accommodations and provide effective communication, um, um, still break down and, you know, you still have to call me, but at least there, you know, uh, I'm only getting called into the situations where there are real bad actors involved. I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Al. I know for myself, it reemphasizes how important it is to advocate for yourself even if you have to be a little bit more assertive than you're used to. But the fastest way to get results for yourself is to be more outspoken. I hope you come back to hear more inspiring stories from other blind and visually impaired people. And thanks for listening.